from Happy Dog Training and welcome to another episode of Dog Talk. In today's episode, I want to talk about fear and anxiety in dogs. And fear and anxiety is what we as trainers deal with on a regular basis because a lot of dogs come in with fearful behaviors and um, show anxiety in some way, shape or form in their daily lives. And there are so many different things that you can observe with dogs that are fearful. It could be the more typical body language signals that people are often looking for, like the tugged in tail or the crouching down or um, the avoidance responses, um, rolling over, showing their belly, submissive urination, um, all these things. But it can be barking at strangers, trying to bite visitors to the home. Uh, it, it can be so many different things. Because dogs who are afraid may act in an aggressive manner to get rid of what makes them afraid. So, um, and in the fear state of mind, they're also not going to be very open to things that aren't relevant to their fear. So sometimes people come with cookies, they come with treats, and even I, I work with toys, so even with toys, in that moment where a dog is super fearful, the toy isn't relevant. It's not important in that context. The only thing that's relevant in the context of that fear is what makes that dog afraid. And anything that doesn't help that is irrelevant right now, even if otherwise he likes it. So what we often see is people trying to give their dogs command when they have these fearful responses. So like unloading on a stranger and barking and whatever is often driven by fear. And most of the time it's actually driven by fear in dogs. It's seldom driven out of pure aggression, I want to end you kind of thing. Of course, that's there too, but that's not the majority of cases of dogs that people live with. So with the majority of pets, when you see these kinds of aggressive behaviors, they're either habitual, ritualistic, or driven by fear. And when it's by fear, the dog has a goal of basically getting what makes them afraid go away. Things they otherwise would enjoy don't matter until that fear is gone. So um, a dog trainer friend of mine says this in, in his workshops. It doesn't matter how much I like chocolate cake. If I'm being chased by an ex-murderer, I'm not going to stop for a slice. <laughs> so very good example in my view. Um, because it's not relevant to getting away from the ex-murderer. I like the chocolate cake after the elf dealt with the ex-murderer. But it's whatever is relevant in the context of that fear is the only thing that matters. But that, that's the responses that we see with fear. And there's so many reasons why dogs could become fearful. It could be that they were separated too early from their mother. Um, should generally not be done before like seven weeks. Um, seven weeks kind of like a good time, but before is not good. There's lots of things uh, mother dogs teach their puppies that humans can't really teach effectively, so it's better if you don't do that. Then there is the shelter route. Dogs were surrendered and they were handed around from shelter to shelter, or foster home to foster home. That's obviously um, ca causing anxiety and fear within a person that doesn't a dog. Um, could be from a dog attack. Now the dog becomes fearful of other dogs and preemptively always wants to strike. Um, the dog has <clears throat> insecurities that they've developed during the fear phases because they were mismanaged. There's three fear phases, two to three, third one's kind of debatable. But um, there's three phases where dogs are more susceptible or more 
less susceptible, but they're more afraid or more aware of things in the environment, all of a sudden become more skittish. If it's handled right, passes quickly. The first one is early on, the mother handles it, goes like this. Second one is week eight, nine often. So that's why getting them into a home before that so they can get familiar and comfortable is helpful. So the people they just met are no longer strangers to them. They can help during this time. And the third one, if it happens, is kind of later, randomly all over the place. There used to be um, some, um, some chart on UC Davis's website that outlined all the stages and ages, but that is no longer there because it kind of doesn't hold up. So it probably removed it because it's not that. Um, that reflected in reality what they actually look like. But th those, are, those are the things that um, we see in the behaviors, and those are some of the reasons. But the, the ultimate underlying reason is that a dog is genetically not secure. So he is not a secure being. If you have a really secure being, genetically secure being, where it's just like these are rock-solid psychological toughness, and that's a genetic trait. Um, it doesn't matter much what else happens. That dog will be just fine. If the dog is a psychological softy, many are, then all these things do have an impact matter and can make a big difference. So it really depends on what the genetic makeup of your dog is, on how much you have to worry about it, how much you don't. If you have a dog, a puppy, that is from a working line, breeding operation, like um, and when I say breeding, I mean professional breeders. I don't mean backyard breeders, I don't mean hobby breeders, I don't mean any of this nonsense that shouldn't exist. I'm talking about professional breeding by people who know what they're doing, who are maintaining breed standards, maintaining breed traits, care about the health of the breed, care about healthy genetics, like professional breeding. That's the only breeding I'm referring to, just to be clear. So when, when you have a dog that is bred in a way that you have solid genetics and solid psychological makeup, the dog's not going to be afraid of things even when they get into fear phases or even if things happen, they could be a little scary, they quickly recover. Um, and with working line breeds that are bred to actually work, so actually go hunt, actually do a bite work, actually go protection, whatever the work is, but like real work, like purpose breeding. Um, with dogs like that, you have a much tougher psychology. You don't have these issues so much. So people with purpose-bred dogs, work bred for work, are going to have fewer of those issues to deal with. They maybe never have to worry about it. But most people don't. Most people rescue their dogs or they have them from pet dog breeders. And the psychology of those dogs isn't necessarily always the toughest. And that's not necessarily a problem, but you deal with more of these fear issues and you have to address them and you have to work with them. But you're going to have an upper limit on how confident a dog can be based on the genetics. So that is always the upper limit. So the maximum a dog can be genetically tough is in the genes. It's just like with us in any trade. Right? So I could learn how to play the piano. I will never be Beethoven. I just not, yeah, so it's, it's very simple. I can learn a thing, but I'm not going to be the master who had the perfect hearing and it's going to be like this expert who just naturally could. And that's the same when it comes to traits like confidence. There's going to be upper limits and there's going to be the possibilities that you can reach or you can't reach. Every dog that's come into our confidence builder program, we've been able to help and make him better. 
And one of the things that I always discuss with the owners initially when we have this conversation, they call in for the consult, is there's going to be a genetic limit on how far your dog can go. We will make him the best version of himself, but will he become a social butterfly if he's now two years old and afraid of things? That is unlikely. Uh, can, can we get him to no longer bark at visitors? Sure. <laughs> can, can we get to a point where living with him is more pleasant and you don't have to deal with these, um, these fearful outbursts that he, that he has? Yeah, we can get that under control and make him a more calm and wholesome being and generally more confident. But there's always going to be a limit on how far an individual dog can go. And I'm usually conservative in my estimates, so I try to not overpromise things when it comes to that because you never quite know how far a dog can go until you start working with them. Um, but a lot of dogs have surprised me on, on how much further they could go from where we started and at what age. So that's always good, right? So I'm always estimating more conservatively because I don't want to disappoint people. And when the dog then goes a little bit further than I initially thought, that's awesome. And it's like, wow, that's fantastic. And everybody's super happy about it. Um, just recently, we have a dog right now. Um, the major breakthrough, this dog has never played with a ball with his family in his entire life, ever. And now he's starting to play with a ball. And he's starting to put himself into it. He's trying to play tug, actually. It's just like, it's beautiful. It's just the most beautiful thing to watch when you get a dog to, like, push himself past his comfort zone, past his limits, and have a fun interaction and get into something that he's never done before. That actually will help him further. And then it speeds up. It's, it's a great thing. So that's, but that's the process of dealing with it. It's just a little side note. So fear, we talked about some of the signals. We talked about some of the reasons. And we talked about the genetic limits. So let's talk about what's truly important about this. And what I really want to get to is the internal workings. Because when back then, in the 50s and 60s, when behaviorists were ruling everything and they had very limited thinking, everything is just observable, outward behavior. They didn't know any better, right? The brain is a black box, and we don't know. We now know. So things have changed dramatically in, in our understanding and our knowledge about what goes on in the brain of mammals. And a dog is a mammal, a human is a mammal, there are some sea creatures that are mammals, a manatee is a mammal, a dolphin is a mammal, but basically everything that walks around on land is pretty much a mammal. I mean, uh, the reptiles are not mammals, they're, they're reptiles, but um, obviously all the apes, um, there's so many animals that are the mammal group. And all the mammals share the emotional systems. So in the brain layout, and this is super simplified, this is from uh, what I'm describing now is from a book called Affective Neuroscience by Jack Panksip, and it's a field of the affective systems, the emotional systems, and so uh, super simplified, there's three layers to the brain, mm -hmm. and the base layer is kind of the automotive function, it's also referred to as the reptile brain or the lizard brain, uh, but this is basically the automotive functions are handled, your, your hair stands up, your body shivers, um, and also habits are stored in, in this part of the brain. It's a major uh, factor in executing habits. There is a, a book called The Power of Habit that describes some super interesting uh, observations that they made. Um, and, yeah, wonderful to, to read and gives you a deeper understanding of that. But that's the, that's basically the base layer. And, and every animal, not just mammals, but every animal has this. 
Now, the next layer in the brain that came in the evolutionary development of creatures is what mammals have, and that is the limbic system. So the second layer is the emotional systems. And the limbic system is something that handles all the emotions of mammals. There are seven emotional systems, and they're not like esoteric constructs. They are physical regions in the brain. We can pinpoint them. We can put electrodes on your head in a particular location, and we can measure what goes on there. Or we could, with the same electrode, stimulate that particular brain area, and you would feel that emotion. So you could, by attaching an, an electrode to the area where the, the amygdala is located, that is the fear center, um, stimulate the amygdala, and you would tremble in fear for no other reason than the amygdala was stimulated. So that, these are the, the centers of the brain that handle emotions. There is fear, panic, and rage. They're considered negative emotions. There is seeking, and then there is um, play, care, and lust in the positive side of emotions. So there's seven of these groups, the seven of these emotions. The uh, fear, panic, and rage, and seeking, they are the most studied emotions in the brain. And they're called also the blue ribbon emotions, or grade A emotions. Now, how do we know this? So we have um, put people and animals and dogs into MRI scanners and functional MRI scanners and looked. So we know where they are. And we know that they are the same in all mammals. We know that all mammals have the same emotional centers in their brain. The limbic system is the same in all mammals. Let that sink in. There is no such thing as a distinct emotion, like physical emotional difference, between a dog, a cat, a mouse, a horse, or a human. There is no difference. Now, there is complex emotions, there's constructed emotions that are not part of these groups. They're built with a higher brain function, and then use those, so like jealousy or something like that, would be a higher level emotion, and then there's going to be limits on which species can have those. But for example, with jealousy, dogs absolutely can. But so the seven core groups, fear, panic, rage, and seeking, care, lust, and play, play is an emotion, it's an emotional center, um, are physical things in the brain, in the limbic system. And then the third layer is the um, neocortex. The neocortex is the higher brain function. That is where all the complex stuff happens. That's where the higher intelligence is located. And then there's the prefrontal cortex, which is part of the neocortex. That's the executive function of the brain. That is where the real creativity and, and, and true intelligence is housed. This is why we're trying to build self-driving cars and chimpanzees do not. <laughs> so that is that. Now, but so for example, dogs have all these systems as well. They're just smaller in the higher brain function. So in the um, the uh, executive function, the prefrontal cortex in a dog is about 8 or 9% of their neocortex, while in a human it is 28 or 29%, something like that. It's a huge difference in size. But it's all there. So they have an executive function. It's just less developed. But we know that all from MRI scans. There is a documentary and a book and a TED Talk and videos on it. It's called... Um, how Dogs Love Us. I think Burns was the name of the, the doctor who, Jeffrey Burns, I believe? Not, I'm not sure. But uh, who, who did the study. And 
he shows in this documentary and TED Talk how love is manifested in a dog's brain. And that is how this is called how a dog loves us or how dogs love us. But they did this with all kinds of things. So this was just one example. So what they did in this, uh, in this particular case, they trained dogs, a dog trainer go and train dogs to put their head on a block inside an MRI scanner and hold it still despite this MRI thing making noises because they're loud. So they trained the dogs to do that. And once that was done, they had dogs go in, turn the MRI on, and showed the dog pictures of things or enacted things. So, but they presented them with information while they were looking at the MRI picture, a functional MRI of the dog's brain. And when they showed the dog a picture of their owner, the same area in the dog's brain lit up that lights up in a human brain when we look at someone we love, how dogs love us. So we know that the emotional center, emotional area for love, it's the care part, um, is located in the exact same spot in a dog as in a human. And they did it for other dogs and fear and all kinds of stuff. So they know it's all the same. And we've done it with other species along the way. So we know that for mammals, that is a universal thing. So all mammals have these seven emotional systems. As I said, the amygdala is the, the fear center of the brain. So when you have a balanced brain, a healthy brain with someone who doesn't have trauma or PTSD, just someone who's a healthy, balanced person, with a healthy brain, all these emotional systems are evenly accessible or equally accessible in the same manner. There is no emotional system that activates faster, has more density in the brain, that more density meaning more neuronic activity, more brain mass, more, um, more going on, would activate faster, would be like the default. Right? So in a healthy brain, it's all even. So a, hel a healthy brain can equally activate care, lust, play, fear, panic, rage, or seeking in an equal manner, no difference. When you have a fearful brain, when you have or a, a dog or a human who has trauma or who is more fearful, what you see in an MRI scan is there's more brain density in the amygdala area, so there's more brain mass. That part of the brain activates faster and earlier, so the first response of that brain when there's any kind of emotion is always the fear response first. So you can see this on an MRI. That's what happens internally because it always activates first because the dog's afraid all the time. So whenever he sees something, oh my God, what's that? What's that? What's that? What's that? So that makes that part of the brain more active because that's what the dog constantly experiences. So that, that's kind of a bit of the underpinning of this. So how do we use that in training to help to understand this? How is this important, right? Um, so it's important because we understand the seeking system quite well as also. That the seeking system is the system that's responsible for motivation. It's desire, it's curiosity, checking things out, investigating things. Hey, what's this? Hey, what's that? Without fear, with curiosity, embracing it and investigating it. And the um, seeking system, when it activates... It's kind of like the lever on a hot, cold shower water thing. And let's say I have a, a, a brain that's in a fear system right now. There's a fear response. 
And it's never 100%, it's, let's just say it's 80% or 60% is a fear response right now, the other 40 is whatever. So I have a 60% fear response and I manage to activate the seeking system in that moment. What will happen is that the seeking system can shift the brain out of this fear state into a positive emotional state. So it can take it out of it and move it over. It's kind of like regulating from hot to cold. So the seeking system is the regulator in a way that can shift the brain from one side to the other. So if I have a fear response and I turn on the seeking system, I go over to the other side, which is good. I can go over to play. That's the goal usually, but the other two are not as useful in this context. But play is what you're usually trying to get to. So basically, my dog has a fear response and I do something that triggers the seeking system and then he goes, no, 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 no go over here. So he goes, oh my God, no, 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 go over here. Fear response, no, 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 go over here. <laughs> so it's always like, no, 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 go over here. So we want to trigger the seeking system every time he has a fear response. So the way we trigger the seeking system, which is also the dopamine release system. So um, there's another thing about the seeking system that's kind of relevant to understand. If the seeking system goes offline, you basically have depression. So that's the last thing that Pangsep worked on before he passed away. I think he passed away after the fourth or fifth edition of his book was published. And this is a field he's worked on for a long time. There's also a tech talk, TED talk from Pangsep, which is interesting to watch. But the depression is something he worked on at the end. And this was basically, depression is when the curiosity, when the motivation's gone, the fear center is offline. So they were experimenting with getting a dopamine release going and bringing this back online to help with depression. Um, and I don't know what the latest on that is, but it's just like what I saw in this TED talk when I watched it. But it's responsible for keeping a person out of depression. So it's also important to understand that the seeking system is a powerful part of the, the emotional, the limbic system. So the way the seeking system can be activated is by the presence of something good, the desire for something good, or non-threatening novelty. So what would be an example of this? Right? So non-threatening novelty is what we can play around with quite well in, in training. So let's say your dog's in a fearful response and you're with your dog and instead of trying to give him command, let's say you were to sit down on the ground in the middle of the street and all of the sidewalk. Your dog would stop whatever this fearful thing is, and he would immediately come to you and check you out. Say, Are you okay? What's going on? Because it triggered curiosity. Curiosity was by, by something novel. So there's novelty and it's non-threatening. It's something he's never seen before. It's something that's quite curious. He doesn't know quite what to make of it and needs to investigate that. This is concern. It's also you. cares about you. Right? So you know, what, what's happening here? So that, that's non-threatening novelty. Um, squirrel. Non-threatening novelty. It's also the presence of something good and the desire for something good. Squirrel running up the tree. Right? So there's desire for something good, presence for something good, and non-threatening novelty right over there. So the dog has to go investigate. A smelly bush, the dog may drag you to, he wants to sniff that. That's the presence of something good and there's desire to investigate. And maybe it's novel, maybe it's not, maybe it's familiar, who knows what the dog smells in this moment. But these three, so 
presence of something good, desire of something good, and non-threatening novelty activates the seeking system. And when the seeking system activates, we can shift the brain out of a negative emotional state into a positive emotional state. So we're trying to do that in training. We can do that in training with play or by acting in a way that is surprising to the dog, doing something that is unfamiliar, non-threatening, and kind of curious. So trying to play with a ball on your own, throwing it against the wall, throwing it up in the air, pretending to have a good time, is curious. So dogs will try to wonder, what's happening here? Am I missing out on something? So they're trying to get into it. The more fearful the dog are, is the longer this will take. But this is not a bad approach. You can throw the ball back and forth and run after it, and the dog may all of a sudden like, like maybe participate in this, what's happening here. So triggering the seeking system is a super powerful way during training to bring a dog out of a fearful response. If we now manage in training to bring the dog out of a fear state every time he goes in, so it's like I said earlier, the brain goes into fear response, I trigger the seeking system, I go, no, 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 go over here. No, 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 go over here. So now I'm turning the seeking, the, the, the fear center off every time, or diminish it to somewhat with my seeking system activation. What will happen over time, it's not overnight, this takes a bit, but what will happen is that the neuronic activity in the fear system area will start to diminish, and the brain will become more balanced with that regard. Can we get it completely balanced? Who knows? But we can diminish it and we can adopt to more balanced state of mind. Huh? Ideally, you get it completely diminished, it becomes all balanced, but that's in a perfect world. And so you never quite know how far you're going to get. The dog may always have some concerns about some things, and you can't really remedy them. You can deal with things that the dog does that are unacceptable. So if a dog becomes aggressive towards familiar visitors or even just a mailman, um, you can certainly suppress that behavior and give them ways to feel better about the situation in general. And There's all kinds of ways of dealing with this. But the, the goal is ultimately to make him feel better, not just um, deal, deal with a thing at hand, but also make him a better being. And for that, we want to diminish as much of this extra neuronic activity in the fear area that we, as we can. So we're trying to balance the brain out as best as we can and get the dog to the best possible place. Once we have um, him taking some more chances and trying things and exploring and seeing that he can do things, you usually see confidence start to come up and then go up and up and up. And he goes, the beginning's super slow, but then it kind of escalates and gets faster and faster and faster once you get to a certain point. And that's with every dog is a little different. So there's, there's no like, it's going to be 10 weeks every time. It doesn't go this way. So I've noticed over the years doing that, there is somewhere in the in the two to three months time frame is usually where it happens where you start getting seeing bigger progress. And I'm not 100% sure if this is related. And I don't think it's time at all. I don't think it's related to time. I think it's related through doing certain things during this time frame and kind of the, the training activities that happen in this time frame get the dog to a certain point and just the time is just accidental per se. It just takes that long to get there from a training perspective to really make the progress. And it's not that we couldn't move faster, but it seems like a lot of dogs can't move faster when it comes to fear. And that's my experience with it. I've been doing this for 18 years now, 
um, there other people may have different experiences with duration and, and the fear cases they have. But I've gotten some pretty serious fear cases and continue to get them, working with one right now, who I haven't seen uh, a case this intense in a couple of years. So the other ones that I've gotten the last couple of years were kind of milder. This one's been, um, I would say, the most intense one in the last two years. There's been, there's been more severe things, but it's pretty interesting. And she's starting to come around, which is kind of cool. So it's, it's really interesting to see how this dog is starting to, to take more chances and starting to explore more and be more willing to uh, open up. So, but that's a little side note. So that's what happens in the brain. So we have a fear response, we activate the seeking system, and then we shift the emotional response over. I'm using play. Um, that's the general approach. So that's the biology behind all of that. That happens with a fear response in the brain. So on that, a couple of things that I want to point to. And these are things that you hear, that you read on the internet. Some, some dog people online claim these. So it's very common things that you hear. Don't pet the dog while he's in a fearful state of mind. It reinforces the fear. It's a very common thing that you hear. It is ludicrous. If you understand how this works in the brain, if you understand how dogs function, that is a ludicrous thing to be thinking. First of all, nothing is reinforcing to that fear that doesn't make it stronger. Reinforcing means making something stronger. A petting your dog may enjoy in one context. If it doesn't calm your dog down, in the context of a fear response is meaningless to him. So best case, it's neutral. If it helps calm him down, it doesn't make the fear stronger, it diminishes it. So it's from that perspective, ridiculous right there. But it's, it can't reinforce that and make the fear stronger. It's just biologically impossible. It just doesn't work that way. But it, this keeps persisting as an idea. And this idea is driven by 1950s behaviorist thinking, that everything we are and everything we can be is just a combination of reinforcement and punishment sequences. It goes back to Watson and Thorndike and B.F. Skinner. That was their mindset. That was their thinking. And too many people haven't moved on from that because that is clearly nonsense. There is this, this famous thing that Watson said, um, who was the first one who started formulating the operant conditioning um, ideas and that then Skinner popularized and made them what they are today. But he said, give me 12 well-shaped infants and I can make them into anything I want with reinforcement and punishment, a doctor, your lawyer, or even a beggar man, something like that. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but that's essentially what he said. And at the time, people believed that. I don't think there's many people who believe that today because that's utter nonsense. And we've, we've kind of learned that's utter nonsense. It's just not how this goes. Right? So, but there's still too many who think this applies to dogs, this kind of thing. And it's just not true. It makes no sense. Um, another thing in that context is a, a quote that I always like to refer to from um, Jordan Peterson. He said it in, a, in an interview, and it came to the topic of animals. And 
he said this, I hope I get this right. Uh, he said the, the thing amongst knowledgeable behaviorists is that the anthropomorphization of animals is generally the appropriate tactic, unless you have reason to doubt it, because there is continuity between us and animals. There is the idea that there's discontinuity goes back to 1950s behaviorism. I think I got this pretty accurate. <laughs> but that's the, that's the quote. And, and that is so spot on. What we used to consider anthropomorphization of animals is actually not even anthropomorphization. Because anthropomorphization means attributing an animal or a thing, an attribute that is related to a human, the thing or the animal does not possess. That's what anthropomorphization is. And with emotions, animals possess them. Dogs possess them. So when we're talking about the fearful responses, this is not even anthropomorphization. It's just attributing reality to them because we now know from MRI scanners that um, the emotional systems are all the same. So when you have a dog and a fear response and you want to understand what's going on with this animal, try to relate it from a human perspective because it will probably work. So if you were afraid of this dog, how would you react? How would you feel? Now, the external expression of the fear may, will differ by species, right? So um, when dogs are afraid, they'll, they may bite people. Humans tend to not do that that much, I hope. <laughs> but so the external expression of the fear response will vary based on species. But the internal fear experience or rage experience or whatever, that will not vary. It will be the same. Now, when you have a complex emotion, we would, uh, like, like jealousy is a complex emotion. Com um, it would start in your, in your neocortex, and then you would reason your way into that, or reason your way out of it. We're excellent at this. Right? We're reasoning our ways in and out of emotions all the time. <laughs> Animals don't do that. They don't reason themselves into emotions or out of emotions. <clears throat> they just experience them based on what they're observing. So they, they, they don't take it to the level people take it to. We're, we're special creatures. The uniqueness of humans is clearly something uh, to behold. But when it comes to the emotional sponsor, so the, the base level and the limbic system in the brain, there isn't really a lot of significant differences that are relevant to any of this between us and dogs, or us and mice, or us and cats, or us and horses. They're all mammals. And up to the limbic system, the differences aren't there. Higher brain functions, oh yeah, big differences, obviously. But up to the limbic system, emotional responses, mm, eh, they're not that different. So um, it's an important thing to know, to understand, and this is how fear fits in to the overall spectrum, a little bit on how we address it as well in training. Our Confidence Builder program does exactly that. There's also an article on the website that outlines that um, in, in, well, in, in a succinct format, I think. There's a picture uh, also from the Effective Neuroscience book in there with, with full accreditation, obviously. Um, just the image showing the systems, and because they're all connected to each other. So all the emotions can basically shift over um, the, the, the blue ribbon emotions. So fear, panic, rage, and seeking, they're all connected. If one can go to the other, they can all work together. So you often have um, fear and rage go hand in hand. So we have an aggressive behavior, that's the fear system activating the rage system, and then you have the barking, growling, and snarling, and that kind of thing. So that's driven by the rage system in the brain. And the rage system, just a quick side note, the rage system goes from the lowest level of um, 
frustration of, uh, of rage, which is frustration, that's the lowest level. And it goes all the way up from frustration to everybody must die. <laughs> so it's like, I'm going to kill you all, that kind of thing. So the rage is like the highest level, and the lowest level is frustration. And frustration usually starts when we are prevented from accomplishing an outcome. So if you are prevented from succeeding in whatever it is you're trying, you become frustrated. And frustration is the first level of rage, anger, rage, up the scale. So you want to go home, but you're stuck in traffic. So frustration. And it can go to road rage. Um, yeah. So that, that's a little side note on, on, on that particular system. But this is all based on uh, affective neuroscience, uh, which are the affective systems, the affective responses in the brain, and how they are the same between humans and animals, and mammals, not all animals, but mammals. And I hope that explains a little bit what goes on inside your dog's brain when he's afraid, and why certain things, like giving commands or giving cookies, may not work in this context. because It doesn't make the feel, dog feel better about what he's afraid of and how we can go about addressing that by triggering the seeking system and through novelty is usually the easiest way of accomplishing that. So that was a little deep dive of um, some of the more intricate things that we do in, in training and the background and the biology behind it. So there is a deeper reason for a lot of those things that on the surface, hi, throwing a ball, cool. <laughs> but uh, maybe I'm throwing it in a specific way and doing specific things with it that's more than throwing. Um, it can also be done with food, for example. So uh, it doesn't become about the food, though. It becomes about tracking the motion of the food. So if you were to try this with food, which I've done in the past, is you could throw a couple of pieces of treats through the dog's field of, motion, of vision. So let's say my dog's staring at something, and I take a couple of treats and throw them through his eyes through his field of vision. If his eyes are tracking it, even if he doesn't go for it, um, that's an indication that I may be able to trigger the seeking system by throwing more things in front of him. I can't hit him, <laughs> but that's not ideal. Oh, a treat probably would matter if it was one treat. But um, if I throw more treats through his field of vision, he goes, hey, what's this? Um, that can also help trigger the seeking system. If he eats it or not, it's completely irrelevant. I just want to see if he tracks it. Now, if his eyes are tracking it and he's like trying to explore it, could be a way to snap him back into a more curious mindset and explore something versus what he's concerned about. Can be worth a shot. Right? So, especially in the beginning when you don't know the dog well, um, that can help. Feeding from your hand doesn't really work well with um, fearful dogs. They tend to not care for that. But if you throw the treats around, so there's a great video called Treat Chase 2.0, it's linked on our website under the Training Without Conflict um, link. Um, it's an Ivan Balabanov training video. He doesn't really work with food, but it's like, if I work with food, here's how I would do it kind of thing. Um, and it, it shows how to play with food, basically. And the tree chase game is kind of using some of those aspects and the novelty just in a food component. But same principles, no different. Okay, so I hope that was helpful. Um, give me a little bit more understanding. This video goes together with the podcast, obviously, and will also be posted on the page that has the article for fear and anxiety as a reference also. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found it valuable. And I will see you next time. Bye.